The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. And today, we're very fortunate to have Vince Bertram, the CEO of Project Lead the Way, with us. Welcome to the show, Vince. Dave, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here, and I, I've followed Project Lead the Way for a long time, and we're going to dig into that, but we like to get to know our guests a little bit more personally at the outset of the show. And so, Vince, you've been a leader of this important nonprofit. You, you're an educator. You were once superintendent of a large urban Indiana school district. You were even named uh, Distinguished Hoosier by then-Governor Mitch Daniels, and, and uh, you're author of a bestseller that we'll talk about, One Nation on one nation under taught, but let's hop in the time machine. What were some of the key early influences in your life that led you to your current path? Well, thank you. You know, it's interesting as you you reflect on your our path and what led us to a particular point and all the influences along the way. There have been many people who have influenced yes. me and supported me, but when I go back early on, I I grew up my father left us when I was pretty young. My mom worked multiple jobs. We were, you know, we lived in poverty, moved mm-hmm. several times, and education was inconsequential in our family. Both my parents had quit high school. And, it, again, education just was not a topic of discussion. It wasn't something that was real important. And certainly, you know, not going, you know, going to college was not a primary concern, something I really never heard. But it was my teachers and my high school principal who believed in me and inspired me. And it was through them that I decided that I wanted to go into education. I just really felt that inspiration and, you know, because of their efforts. And I saw what they were doing for students, and I observed that, and it was just something that became a passion of mine. And thinking about how we can help students, particularly underserved children, who need a hand up and need to have that kind of support system in place. So it was through them that I decided that I wanted to be a teacher, and I was a coach early in my career. But interestingly... What uh, sports did you 
What sports did you I come? coached basketball. Right? I'm from Indiana. Indiana, so yeah. Was, okay. Yeah, so, you know, so we had, to, we had to coach basketball, and I loved it. I really thought early in my career that's what I would do for the rest of my career. But each opportunity I had, I saw it as an opportunity to reach more students. And, and that's why I went from being a coach and then to a principal and then to an urban school superintendent. It wasn't that I just had this, you know, predetermined trajectory. Sure. It was really about opportunity to influence more students. And, and I saw my role going from coaching students to hiring and coaching adults that will, who would influence those students. And I saw that as a very important role. So, you know, moving through that trajectory, and then along the line, I was, I've been inspired by students. And I've been able to see now generations of students who have been influenced by educators and others and have been able to overcome some of the, the, in the grips of poverty and some really challenging situations in their lives to go on and do great things. And that continues to inspire me today. And now I think about our work really from a broader perspective of what this means for our economy as yes. a nation and what it means for students preparing for that economy. Yeah, no, and I, and we want to spend a lot of the program on on that, and and uh, and we may have already heard some of the answer to this. But my next question in in the book, uh, a whole new engineer, Mark Somerville, and I talk about yes. um, the importance of unleashing experiences, and we talk about where someone trusts us, actually, like your principal trusted you, and and that gives us the courage to do something we might not have have done. Are, are there are there other unleashing experiences? in your life to talk yeah. about? Yeah, the, yeah, it's a great question, too. I, you know, there are. And I, you go back to just a comment you made a moment ago, people who believed and people mm. who inspired, yeah. and also people who trusted. And it was just really interesting. Early on in my life, I had people who trusted me and gave me tremendous opportunities. They joke about now at my my high school, but I said I was the only student in the history of the school to have his own office. And it was kind of interesting. I was student government president, president of my senior class, and there was a, a custodian closet and I noticed that it wasn't being used very often, and I asked if we could convert it to a student government office to get the students' voice and a place to go and and so forth. They allowed us to do that. We went out and raised money, put carpet, and we just made this office. It's like, you know, an eight-by-eight eight space. But what was interesting, and I think back, is like people allowed me to do that. Yeah. You know, people said, yeah, go do that. You know, take that mindset and and convert it to something useful. And, you know, I was involved in Optimist Club when I was in high school, you know, coaching youth sports. And I was vice president of Optimist Club because adults believed and trusted me. And it really inspired me. It gave me that first start into thinking about, you know, leadership and but more importantly about responsibility. And once you're given that kind of trust, then it comes with enormous responsibility. And that was instilled in me very early by people in my life. Yeah, beautiful stories. Thanks, and thanks for for sharing them. And, and, um, and I, I suspect we have a lot of listeners uh, from 
you know, some of the thousands of Project Lead the Way schools uh, listening to us right now. But for, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with uh, Project Lead the Way, what, what is the organization about? Well, Project Lead the Way is a nation's leading provider of science, technology, engineering, mathematics curriculum for K-12 schools. So today we operate in nearly 10,000 schools. We we develop activity, problem, project-based learning for, for students. And our real focus is how do we make learning relevant for students? How do we make these real-world experiences um, available to students so they know why they're learning math, why they're learning science. It's the application of math and science that we really focus attention on. So we build out all these courses and activities for students in K-12, but we also train thousands of teachers. Last year, we trained over 10,000 teachers. This year, we're expecting that number to hit over 13,000. And it becomes, it's a transformational learning experience for teachers as well. You know, it goes beyond the dissemination of information or this mindset that teacher has to be the center of all knowledge in front of the classroom yeah. um, sharing information, but rather a facilitator of te- uh, learning. And the teacher becomes a role of a, of a coach. And we coach. tell our teachers oftentimes that you know you've arrived when students are asking you questions which you have no idea what the answer is, and you're comfortable with that. And that's what we really do from an organizational perspective. So we build curriculum that's engaging, relevant for students, and then we train teachers on how to deliver that curriculum in a robust way. Yeah, and and uh, I think in another segment I want to dig into some of that teacher training a little uh, a little bit more. But you know, you've been um, you've been CEO since uh, 2011. I think the organization goes back to the 90s. When, when was it started, and and how and yeah. how did it get? You know, did it it didn't serve 10,000 schools back at the beginning. What? How did it get its uh, start? Yeah, it started a single high school in upstate New York, and the idea at the time it was a teacher wanted to create a different type of experience for students and at the time was really focused on getting more students into engineering schools. And so it started again in 1997 and the organization grew over the next 15 years to just over 2,000 schools and also create a biomedical science program along the way and in a middle school program. And you know, since then, we've, the last five years, we've continued to grow. But let me go back for a moment, just thinking about the vision that these educators had at the time. So we had, you know, teachers who were trying to create a different type of experience. We had people on the corporate side realizing that we needed a different type of learning for students. So particularly on the application and also how we could inspire more students to go into STEM-related disciplines and at the time specifically engineering. So the founder of Cisco Systems and Cisco Foods, obviously a major global company, um, the family, the Liebig family, uh, became uh, enamored with this idea and became an early investor in Project Lead the Way and really helped build the organization as a national nonprofit and really contributed millions of dollars in the early development and allowed the program to, to start. And then we brought on our first university affiliate was the Rochester Institute of Technology, offering training opportunities as well as dual credit for students. And it really launched from there and, again, grew to over 2,000 schools through 2011. 
And the last five years, we've been able to scale the organization and also create a sustainable organization, one that has grown rapidly and growing now over 35% a year. And it's growing, Dave, because we're getting great results. Yeah, Our now and, is doing and, very well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable phenomenon, and and you know, and actually, it's not, so I'm hearing kind of a you know traditional startup story at the beginning, and then a and then this kind of maybe organic growth phase, and now we're sort of at a place where we're where you're scaling at a corporate uh, kind of level, uh, and and. And uh, as you say, more sustainable. Are there other? Are, we're very interested in the program about how how real and effective change takes place. And I'm wondering what other lessons we can draw from the the growth of the organization. Well, when you think about or two levels really on the growth of the organization. One is we wanted to be scalable, and mm-hmm. you know we were growing relatively at a pretty modest pace, about 400 new programs a year in the through 2008, 9, and 10. So we were at the top, and and we're really, but it was pretty steady. And the idea is, how do we get this to more students? And we needed to have the ability to scale. So it really took a major investment in infrastructure. So we started thinking about systems and people yep. and how we can connect and so forth. So we started building all of that out. And the other piece, though, is we had to be sustainable. And for us, sustainability was getting away from reliance upon philanthropic support that we had to put those resources to use in a different way and those assets in a different way. So we think about return on assets is, you know, we have people and we need to figure out how we can deploy those assets in a way that generates an economic return to sustain the organization. Yes. And that's what we're able to do. So in 2012, we tra- completely overhauled our our business model so that we are fully sustainable. We operate 100% on earned income and earned revenue. And people really like that because it's given us a platform. So the vulnerability of a nonprofit has been removed for us. So we're not, we're not waiting on next year's grant cycle to determine whether we're going to be able to keep people employed. We have, we know what our revenue is going to be for the most part. We'll be able to forecast that. But the other value proposition was the change in philanthropic support. We didn't go away from raising money. We just sure. changed the way we were raising it. Now we, we will go to companies and raise money for schools. And we put 100% of, of those funds into a school grant program. And ironically, our philanthropic support has gone up exponentially. So we've gone from raise, you know, raising 3 or $4 million a year to you know, in 2014, we raised over $25 million. But it's not to support the operations, but rather to support schools. And that has been a, gr- a tremendous growth accelerator for us, yeah. but also a, a tremendous value proposition for companies and how they invest their philanthropic support. Yeah, I always uh, call things that are analogous to that the Jerry Lewis uh, uh, method of raising. It's, it's for the kids, and uh, and yes. and uh, sounds like it's been a, 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 a rousing success for you. So, so yeah, you mentioned you that can't uh, have the, you yeah. can't have the mixed message. You can't say, yep. "Well, this is for kids, but we're going to keep forty percent of it." Yep. you yep. know, for operations. And yep. the other, it it. Yep. It's really difficult for a company to invest millions of dollars in an organization that they're uncertain whether it can sustain without their support. 
And you can get yourself in a really difficult situation if you know, 30 or 40% of your operations are dependent upon philanthropic support. And all of a sudden, you go through some economic downturn. You know, I'll give you an example. We, you know, companies that we invest or investing in us right now, if they go through any kind of cyclical um, economic downturn, they pull back on those resources. Sure. Not yep. that they're pulling back on our support overall, but on the resources, and that leaves a major funding hole for us. And we just didn't want, we just feel like we have a tremendous responsibility to thousands of, of students. We have two and a half million students in our program this year, and it's just an enormous responsibility that we have to make sure that fiscally we're a sound organization. Yeah, now oh, beautiful, and, and, um, We've got about a minute before we head into break. What else would you like our listeners to know about the organization today? Yeah, thanks. I, really, we think about our work on a couple of levels. Obviously, from an educational perspective and how we build this this mindset for students, this growth mindset, this entrepreneurial mindset. But at the same time, Dave, we're really focused on our economy. And what does it mean and how do we develop a skilled workforce for the future of this country? And we know it's our students and we have to increase the pipeline of students going into STEM-related disciplines. At the same time, understanding that these are skills that are transportable across multiple disciplines, multiple sectors. So it's relying not only on our future workforce, but also um, our economy and companies operating this economy are depending on our students. Yeah, great. So we're, we're going to take a bit of a break. And, and um, back in uh, 2014, uh, you, you wrote a book, and we want to talk about um, that book in the next segment. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Vince, Vince Bertram from Project Lead the Way. And in the next segment, we want to we want to talk, talk about... Um, his book, One Nation Undertaught, Solving America's STEM Crisis. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio, and we urge you to get a copy of the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And uh, before the break, we were talking with our our special guest, uh, Vince Bertram of Project Lead the Way, and um, we were talking about... uh, uh, some of the early influences in his life, and as well as uh, uh, how the organization got its start and where it is today. And in this segment, we'd like to turn to uh, a book that you wrote, uh, Vince, in uh, uh, 2014, uh, One Nation Undertaught, Solving America's STEM Crisis. And um, actually, let's start here before, before we talk about the STEM crisis. What, what inspired you or influenced you to write a book? Well, a number of things. One is, I, as I think about our economy, our nation, and the things that put us at, at risk, and I think of all the things that helped build this great country. It was through innovation, ingenuity, the entrepreneurial mindset. And then my question was, are we fostering that kind of development for today's student? And are too many students slipping away from us because of certain elements within our education system? And are we restricting this pipeline, constraining it in a way because of the way we're delivering education to students? And um, I've concluded that I believe that is the case and that we can do something about this. And it's our economy and our nation that absolutely needs our students to develop the kind of skill set necessary to continue this kind of prosperity. At the same time, if our students are going to have that kind of economic prosperity, they have to develop the skills that are going to lead to great careers. I think that's an important piece for us as well. So all of that really led me to thinking about, you know, how to frame this issue in a way that made sense, that brought evidence to the question and and also some real solutions on how we can approach the kind of deficits that we believe we're facing. Yeah, and I, I'm hearing that I'm hearing that yeah, so the the book is centered around STEM, but I'm hearing the 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 problem as um I'm trying to remember the word the exact word you use, but it's something to the effect of the the ways in which we're delivering not working. So in what ways are is education writ large not working for our kids today? Well, there I think there are a number of things. I mean, we have teachers who are are doing a great job with our students and teaching them various content area. And you know, Howard Gardner at Harvard says that yep. the greatest deficit for American students is their inability to apply learning in a context in which it wasn't learned. And we tend to teach everything in isolation. It's we're compartmentalized at all grade levels. 
You know, in elementary, we teach subjects, and we go on to the next subject. We do the same thing in middle school. We get to high school, math yep. down one hallway, science yep. is down another. They're taught in isolation. At the same time, we're not, we're not teaching those subjects in a relevant way. You know, we're teaching math because students need to take a math test, not because these are, way, these are uh, solutions to real-world problems. And you need to be able to do math and science to solve those problems. So the other major concern we have is students make decisions whether they're good in math and science at a very early age, as early as second grade. And too often, students are convinced they're not good at this, and that's perpetuated. And, as re- and also, very apparent as they get into high school and start selecting courses and whether they opt out of more challenging courses, they see as challenging because it's hard, because they don't know and they haven't developed a passion and interest in it. And certainly students who avoid those courses at high school are not going to go on to higher education in those fields and certainly are going to aspire to those fields. So we have an, op- an opportunity to rethink the way we're delivering that instruction at a very early age that inspires students to make learning relevant for them, to yeah. connect all these disciplines, to understand that STEM isn't, you know, while it's an acronym for four disciplines, it's really the foundation of everything and connects to everything. And once they see those connections, then we believe learning becomes relevant for them. Kids get excited about it, and as a result, continue and stay with us throughout the K-12 experience and into higher ed and careers. Yeah, and so there's a, I mean, I'm hearing a strong, you know, so I heard you use words like inspiring and, 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 and a lot of what uh, Mark and I talk about in our book ha- is about mo- yeah. that education is motivationally incorrect. Is we've sort of even when we do STEM, we do we put the S and M before the T and E, and so we so we we sort of do the most abstract thing first and use that as a as a test to see if you're ready to do the. I talk about we we serve up the spinach of STEM before we serve up the chocolate of design, and and so that mm-hmm. there's a sense that we've got the motive, we've got a, we've got our educational system motivationally uh, backward. Comment? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I yeah, completely agree. And you know, and I think that's where when students realize that. Again, I go back to STEM for a moment. People often ask me, are, is our mission to get more students to go into engineering and, or into STEM itself? And I would say that in some ways, yes. But in other ways, we want all students to have these STEM skills that we believe are important regardless of which career path a student chooses. So I'll give you an example. If you take art, how is it connected to STEM? People think the art is some discrete subject that needs to be added to the acronym, but I would suggest it is directly connected to art. You know, whether it's how we make paint and paint brushes and and chemical compounds and canvas and you know the architecture, the creativity, all these things are built in in a part of STEM whether it's computer software programs that allow students to do amazing graphics and design, all this is connected. So rather than think of it as something separate, we look at an integrated approach to teaching and learning. And the same thing with music and acoustics and instruments and all these things that are manufactured, they're made, we build these things. And we believe that's important for students to understand. 
And now they can realize, okay, if you want to go into art and music, you realize the manufacturing process. You know how things are designed. And you know perhaps how we can improve things because you understand the design process a little bit better. And you have math and science background to allow you to come to some conclusions on your own. We think that's very important for all students. And then many will be inspired to go into STEM disciplines, and and that's great. And then when you start to look at career earnings, the job possibilities, I mean, we know that STEM-related careers, you know, the growth of that is two times that of non-STEM careers over the next several years. We anticipate, and we unemployment is half of in STEM what it is in non-STEM careers, and there is a direct correlation with educational attainment and career earnings. So you put all that together, and I think there's a strong case for students to pursue these kind of areas. Do I believe it's for every student? Perhaps not, but every student will benefit from it. Well, and I, I really like what you, you're saying there, and, and I heard the common thread, and this is maybe oversimplifying, but I think you were you were used the word, it's, a, it's this making or doing piece that the arts, uh, all of the arts share with uh, all of our engineering and technology, which is in some ways not shared with the abstraction of science and mathematics and, and liberal education is currently taught. It's the it's yes. the doing the doing piece or the application piece in the world. Yes, we think about you know, you, you know, go back to the arts for a moment. I mean, we yep. we do art. You know, we draw things, we build things. You know, we make music. We you know, we do math problems. You know, I mean, that's the that's a disconnect for students. Yep. And then, how do you apply that into other areas or in places going back to an earlier point with Gardner that you know in a context in which it wasn't learned yeah. you know what math applies to certain things we think is critical but the whole idea I mean students love to build they love to make they love to play at early age and students come to school with this natural curiosity and then we teach them how to do school we teach them how to comply how to follow rules and what we really need students that perhaps aren't following the rules, that are thinking differently. You get into the entrepreneurial mindset and, and so forth. We need people that think differently, that are innovators. And how do we create that kind of environment in a K-12 setting is at the heart of why PLW exists and how we see our work uh, moving forward. Yeah. Well, and and actually, so it, when, we, when we try to, in quality circles, we try to look for root causes of of problems and crises, and it's it it's a bit of a puzzle, you know. So so it's clear that we have this sort of motivationally incorrect sequence. We say we say master the spinach before you can taste the chocolate, and it doesn't mean that you want to fill a kid with chocolate, um, but you you want a better mix of the spinach and chocolate somehow. But somehow we've gotten ourselves into this kind of weird place where the most abstract stuff of human learning is sort of taught as a prerequisite be, uh, before you're allowed, you're given the keys to actually do the cool stuff with it. And I, I'm, you know, from a, I mean, I have my own ideas about why this is, but how, what are, what are the root causes of kind of teaching the abstract uh, theoretical stuff before, um, being able to use use the knowledge. Why? How did how did we get 
I mean, this is really, I mean, when you look at it that way, it's almost obvious what the solution is. And it seems to me a lot of what Project Lead the Way does is kind of turn that around and, and, and help, help the system get it right. But, you know, how did we, how did we get into this pickle? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think part of it is, you know, when you think of the scaffolding of learning and how we, a normal learning process, there's a belief that there is certain content knowledge you need to inform your decisions as you move and progress so that you can do more complex type of work. You know, in mathematics, we teach certain, you know, we teach multiplication tables, we teach how to add, subtract, and then all of a sudden, you know, math becomes more complex along the way. And the same thing in the sciences. So it's, you know, it makes sense from that perspective, but it's not very inspiring, and it's certainly not very engaging for students. Yeah. Then yeah I, but go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just th- saying that, you know, the idea then is, in the way we have structured schools, everything is. I made this point earlier. Compartmentalized, yeah. even around teacher expertise. So I learned to teach math. I'm not a science teacher, and I'm not a history teacher. But all those are interrelated in many ways, but I don't necessarily have that knowledge. So I teach my course and my content. And we have to find a way to bring all those things together. And a lot of it requires collaboration and a different way of teaching and learning. I think the other key thing that's happened in American education over the last several years is, you know, through accountability. And I am a strong proponent of accountability, yet we have believed that accountability is around taking exams. And as a result, when you're only testing certain areas, then the focus is on improving performance in those areas, not necessarily how those things are connected and how by giving students projects and activities and the application of these things would actually elevate learning. And we just haven't moved in that direction as a country. And I think what's happened over the last several years actually narrowed our focus, but not necessarily in a positive way. Yeah, and uh, the number of things to unpack in in there. I, the one that I want to go back to, I, you know, I, I think you know this the sense that you you take you teach the basics, and I I, I did a little movie on the missing basics of engineering because I was always fighting my colleagues over. They wanted to talk about the math and science as being basic to building stuff, but no building stuff and talking about building stuff and being intuitive about building stuff is actually a basic as well. And so somehow we have this kind of skewed uh, vi- vision of what the, the basics are, that the, the that you have to do these things before you can do anything with them seems to be to be a, a fundamental category error. But, but, but I think it's also an error of status. It seems to me that if you go back far enough, if you go back to, so, say, the Greeks, um, you know, uh, 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 Plato and, and Socrates and Aristotle were walking around teaching the elites of that society. And the people who made stuff were slaves. And so I, it seems to me that part of the stigma that we're fighting is goes back to the 4th and 5th century BC of, of, of Greece and Athens that, that, that making is somehow uh, the class and, and uh, what low class people do. And so we can't come out and say it, but uh, actually when we, it's, I think in part it's hard for us to turn it on its head and do the technology and engineering, the making first, because 
we we sort of have these the aspiration for our kids to be high class and high class people learn the abstract theoretical stuff that that by itself isn't particularly useful that only that only high class people have the time to study. Um, that, I threw a lot in there, but any any uh, reaction to what I just said? I was speaking to a group of manufacturers, and I asked the question how many of them had high-paying jobs available in their companies, and almost every hand went up. I asked, how many of you have high-paying jobs in your companies that require perhaps a high school diploma or more, but not a college degree? Almost every hand went up. My next question was, how many of you want your own children to have those jobs? (laughs) And there was silence and no hands. Beautiful. Well, not beautiful, but yeah. Yeah, it's emblematic. The point is that, yes, whose jobs are those and for whom? And, you know, I think as we look at a variety of career paths, I mean, you know, parents have aspirations for their children. We have, we've gone down this path that there are certain careers that are more desirable perhaps than others. And and that's, I think, a a societal issue that we have to confront. We have to help people understand the real opportunities available to them, what it really looks like, how over time things have changed. I mean, today you go into advanced manufacturing facilities and nowhere close to what it looked like 50 years ago. Sure. And, and, and so forth. And today we don't have people... You know, we need people programming robots on assembly lines. We need people operating, you know, technology and machinery and not necessarily all the manual labor that happened. It's just a fundamental shift, but also with that comes a difference in skills. Yeah. And we need the high-skilled workforce, and that's where a lot of our companies are struggling right now is finding those people who have the skill set to take on those kind of roles and responsibilities. And that's another area of, obviously, of focus for Project Lead the Way. Well, and we want to talk about that some more. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back and talk about that, and then talk about the, uh, the, the future of the organization. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Vince Bertram of Project Lead the Way. And in the next segment, we want to, we want to talk some more about um, what, where Project Lead the Way is and where it's headed. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio, and I'm Dave Goldberg, and go ahead and get the coaching and deep faculty development and training you need to help transform higher education at 3joy.com. And uh, we return uh, with our guest, Vince Bertram of Project Lead the Way. And in the last segment, we were, well, we talked about a lot of stuff. We were talking about uh, some of the root causes of the STEM crisis, the education crisis that um, um, that we're um, facing. I, I want to return to that for a minute, uh, Vince. Uh, in 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 your book, you talk uh, use the word rigor a fair amount, and it and you talk about the programs um, and curricula of Project Lead the Way as rigorous. What um, what does that mean, and why is that important? Oftentimes, when we think of project-based learning, you know, people question, how does that align with academic rigor or the challenge? And I think students in PLTW find that our courses are very challenging. And, and to the, using the word rigor, very rigorous in that by design, it really challenges students to apply math and science in a different context. And, you know, some students who, and some of the students who have the most difficulty with our program are some of our, our highest performing students. They're used to having a right or wrong answer. Yes. And it's just no true false. And in our program, it's not. It's the difference in saying, you know, the, giving a student a problem, five plus five equals X. Well, there's one answer to that. A very different question A plus B equals 10. And there are multiple ways to arrive at that number. And what we try to encourage students is to think differently. And, and as a result, it really challenges them. And then we give them high level. Our students are using Autodesk Inventor software in middle school. Right, they're sure. using the same software used in Fortune 500 companies and designing, you know, world-class aircraft. They're using in seventh grade. You know, they're using real technology in real ways, and it is challenging for them. But once they learn how to do that, it is, it is. It opens enormous opportunity for our students, and that's what we think about rigor, is that we're not interested in, in teaching this at a low level. What we want to do is build students up to build their capacity to learn very complex material, and, and in PLTW, that's what they get really across all three of our pathways in engineering, biomedical science, as well as computer science. Yeah, and so I'm hearing, I'm hearing your answer through uh, the uh, the my Barry Johnson lens. We had Barry on the show the other day. Barry wrote a book called Polarity Management. So there's a sense of, 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 um, we have these opposites that kind of need each other. So we have things like, um, 
uh, rigor, and then we have things like uh, choice and and uh, design, and 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 we sort of, we tend to view them as opposite. So sometimes some of the some of the reaction to a whole new engineer was, well, Mark and Dave want fluffy engineers, but nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, we use the yeah. example of Olin College as being on the list of the hardest engineering schools on the planet, and some of the most fun. We want that's not. If you if you balance the polar these polarities these opposites well, and so I'm hearing your use of the term rigor as a way to reassure um, those who want people to really learn let their lessons well. That yes, you're going to learn the lessons well, but um, we're going to do it in this project based problem based way that uh, is is motivationally more inspiring. Yes, as you know, I'm on the president's council at Olin College, and yep. you know it's that type of model that. You know, I think is transformational, and but I think to your point, uh, that's exactly the way I frame it. And I certainly didn't take from a whole new engineer that there was anything fluffy about it at all. You know, I really believe that this is about challenging students, but in a different way. Yeah. We believe that rigor is just making things harder, and we don't believe that. We think that relevancy and and the application can be very challenging for students. And we have to find ways to simplify learning. And I believe that students can learn more complex material by applying it in a relevant way because they see the connectivity. It makes sense to them. We can give, we can give students math problems or we can have them um, working on something of great interest to them, whether it's building a building or a a bridge, or working on a NASCAR. You know, we can take these mathematical concepts and science, engineering, and technology and apply it in a way that makes sense for students. And it's that, when in, in that space that students get excited about learning. Yeah. And once they get excited about it, their interest in, in increases, and now we continue to nurture their curiosity. And that's such a major piece. I mentioned earlier in the program how students come to school with this natural curiosity, but we have to nurture that curiosity. We have to give them opportunities to think and question and explore rather than getting to a right answer. Yeah, beautiful. And, you know, and so as we do that, and, and I, you know, know, as you, as we look at, at Project Lead the Way and its history going back to 97. You know, so the organization's been an effective change agent. It's been a prov- provocateur of, of change in a very effective way. In Switch uh, by the Heath Brothers, uh, um, they like to talk about effective change efforts combining the elephant, the rider, and the path, where the elephant is the heart or the emotion of the matter. The rider is sort of the head or the rational matter, and the path is sort of the institutional innovations, the the ways in which we make the path easier to take so that people can do things that lead to more effective uh, outcomes. Um, as an effective change organization, how, how, much, uh, how much elephant, how much rider, and how much path would you identify in your, in, in your PLTW journey? Yeah, I, I love the analogies, the metaphors. I, you know, from our perspective, I think there is a combination of those, right? There is certainly the, the deep passion we have for education and student performance and ensuring that our students have the skills necessary to be successful, and that drives us every day. 
to ensure that our students are ready for this evolving world and the economy that they're going to compete in. At the same time, we love our country and we believe that for our country to continue, we often say that our country wasn't founded, it was built. It was built by people with innovation, ingenuity, the entrepreneurial mindset. And for us to continue to prosper as a nation, we have to continue to nurture this throughout our education system. So that's a real critical piece for us. But we have to be very thoughtful about how we do that. And we have to structure programs in a way that works for both students and teachers. And that's a critical piece. We cannot have one without the other. You know, there are scale-up, you know, strategies that we could say, well, let's just give schools the curriculum and let them run with it. And that would be irresponsible for us. So when I think about, you know, the, the head, it's that we have to be very thoughtful about how we roll this out to schools so they're getting the kind of results that we expect them to get and that they want and expect for their students. And then from an organizational perspective, how we align with workforce demands. Are we teaching the skills that are absolutely essential for our students and are relevant in the workforce? And can we identify skills that are both transportable across sectors at the same time that are skills that will persist you know, despite changes in technology, what are the skills that will students must have and will have regardless of the level of technology? So things like problem solving, critical thinking skills, collaboration in this economy is absolutely essential, as well as our students' ability to communicate effectively, to articulate ideas, and so forth. So all those are things that we think... Um, about as an organization how we move forward. We talk about growth, but we talk about responsible growth. And you know, for us, it's about getting the kind of outcomes that we expect. That's much more important to us than seeing how many programs we can add every year. Yeah, and actually, I, I was interested in what you were just saying. You know, sometimes, and I, I hate the term, but uh, you were talking about what we often call soft skills. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I and I, I I'm working. I think I'm working on a book called uh, Shift Skills. Don't shift. Don't call them soft skills uh, because they're so important to living in the kind of world that we live in. But how how are how are shift? Don't call them soft skills. Baked into um, the way you um, train teachers, uh, the what you roll out in your curricula. What is what is uh, what is PLTW's approach to soft soft skills? Well. We'll use well, the word I, I share time. your disdain for soft skills. Right? I, I just, they're not soft at all. These are yeah. essential skills. We call them professional skills and practically the way, you know, that we, that students are expected to do. I mean, it's the, the great limiter for many students is their inability to articulate their ideas, mm. to communicate effectively, to collaborate it's hard to go into any environment today, whether it's in a local engineering firm or in global multinational corporations working across time zones and regions and cultures and not have the ability to effectively collaborate. It's, it's essential if our students want to compete in this economy. And then their ability to problem solve, to think critically, and not only to be able to think that way, but then to articulate it in a way that makes sense for others. You know, we often talk about, you know, how we can simplify without losing complexity. 
you know, and and that's really difficult. But it's a it's a very important strategy and skill for students to be able to take rather complex uh, data or concepts and share in a way that other people understand. So all those professional skills, as you talk about shift skills and so forth, I yep. think are absolutely essential and embedded in our program. It's a key element of Project Lead the Way in addition to the other technical skills that students must learn. Yeah, and I, I'm, we've got about uh, four minutes left, and I've got I've got more questions than that. But I'm uh, I uh, in your book you mentioned uh, Pike Central High School in Petersburg, Indiana. I had the pleasure, oh, probably three four years ago, to visit Pike while Ray Niehaus was still the teacher there. And and so I'm yes. curious how much you know Ray. I mean, I, I I saw Ray in action, and I saw a lot of what I understood about the kind of trust uh, that's needed to unleash uh, young people and. In uh, you know, when he was the the teacher there, how how much does the success of your program depend on on either having people who are naturally like Ray or or getting them to uh, be able to be more like a Ray Niehaus? Yeah, well, Ray is exceptional, as you know, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for Ray Niehaus. But your question, what that looks like, the teacher is critical to effective learning and, and, and certainly in Projectly the Way. So we invest a lot in teacher training. We have over 600 master teachers across the country who are exceptional teachers, have been trained in PLW to teach adults, and we take our training very seriously. We want to make sure that our teachers are equipped with the skills they need to facilitate this kind of learning for students. Otherwise, it it becomes, um, well, first, we're not going to achieve the outcomes that we are expecting. If we don't have active instruction at the same yeah. time, you know, students are going to be disappointed, and the very inspiration we're trying to, to nurture will, be, will turn into something very different. So the teacher training is critical. The other... But we're also very clear. We're not going to take an ineffective teacher and make that teacher highly effective. What we can do is take a, a skilled teacher with a real interest in this and give them the skills to be exceptional in a classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really where we focus our attention. We've just got a little bit of uh, time left. So maybe uh, we've got time for you to talk about, say, one thing that's on the horizon and, and then uh, – let people know how they can get in touch with the organization if they're interested in learning more. One yeah, minute. Anyone interested in PLTW can go to pltw.org, and we have a solution center and support people here to help answer any questions or to think about how PLW can be in, engaged in local school districts. You know, on the horizon for PLW, we're going to continue to scale. I think, you know, two and a half million students and 10,000 schools. We're growing more schools a year today than we had between 1997 and 2011 combined. You know, last year we we grew over 2,400 schools. So yeah. the numbers are growing rapidly, and we just want to make sure that we maintain the highest level of quality as we scale. So that's a real big issue for us. We're also thinking a lot about the preschool space and what it means for early learning. So, but Dave, also, I guess my final note is, 
you know, there are a few people who are more influential in their writing and thinking about these important issues than you. And we just really appreciate your leadership and all that you're doing for students across America as well. Thank you. Well, Vince, thanks for being on the show and best, best of luck and best wishes to the organization. You're doing great work. You've been listening to Thank Big Beacon Radio. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being with us. Big, we've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our guest Vince Bertram of ProjectLeadTheWay.org. Um, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.